0: And uh, let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll jump in this morning. Father, uh, we do just commit this morning to you. Um, We want you to be at the center of all that we do. We thank you that you created the church, that even though it's not perfect and it's not messy, it meets and satisfies so many of our needs, our deep needs. And so I thank you for this community. I pray that you would guard it and protect it, that you would keep the love and the unity strong. uh, Father, as we move forward, And we pray this in Christ's name. Well, we've been in a series on First Peter, and we're not going to talk about that today. Next week, Brandon's preaching, and he's going to be talking out of First Peter. The following week, we're going to get back to what we used to call a numchuck sermon, which was something we created. And the whole idea was like a regular sermon is like a big old stick, and you can do a lot of damage with it. But but like a nunchuck is a stick with a joint in the middle, you know? You guys know what numchucks are, right? The, and we thought, what if you took a sermon and you had two different guys do two different like parts of it, and they could get all crazy with it. Um, this is a num-chuck sermon, so we used to do a lot of those. And so at the end of uh, August, Rick Gerhardt is going to talk about the end of Peter, where it talks about the devil is walking around, um, prowling around like a, a roaring lion, and just what do we make of that, this adversary and the devil, and, and just kind of a theology of that. And so Rick's going to get up and talk about that, and then Aaron Wells is going to close down the whole First Peter series uh, for us, and that's two weeks from now, and then the first week in September, we're kind of kicking off the fall season, so we're looking forward to that. So that's a little bit of where we're going. This morning, we're talking about baptism, and I was out boating at Coltus Lake yesterday and inner tubing and stuff. It was a gorgeous day yesterday. If you didn't get into the mountains, uh, you should have. Um, but it's it's funny when you like when I first moved here. I'm really plain, and my wife's a lot more artistic than I am, and. And I'm beginning to realize that more. You know, it takes guys about eight years of marriage before we really realize that our wives know better than us in a lot of areas. But when we first moved here, every picture that I wanted to buy, every photograph I liked was always like a panorama of of the Cascade Mountains. I was just obsessed with these landscape pictures. And it was the same picture. It didn't matter who the photographer was. And it was the only thing I liked. And I hated all kinds of other pictures. And now it's funny. I kind of realize I'm kind of, used to that typical picture of the Cascades, and it's not really what excites me anymore. And So it's kind of funny when, we, when you drive up behind Bachelor and loop around, and you get a totally different look at the mountains. It's like you see them for the first time. I don't know if you guys have experienced that, and then you're like, wow, these are pretty cool mountains. Um, we should get a picture, because I'm still locked into the whole landscape thing. Uh, but it, it made me think of this baptism sermon. I, I think baptism is one of those topics that we see from the same perspective and over time we get used to it and we kind of settle in to just taking it for granted. I know that subject, I've seen it a lot, heard it a lot, um, and we take it for granted, we kind of just write it off. There's nothing fresh, there's nothing new. And I think that what I would want to do this morning, if I had a choice, would be to hopefully paint it a little bit differently, show the exact same thing, baptism, but maybe from a different angle so that we can kind of be reawakened to the idea that this is a pretty cool thing that God's built into our faith. And so hopefully we can hit it from a different angle. And, and I want to start trying to, to get at it by talking about the idea of commitments or forced commitments. Um, forced commitments are a powerful thing, or commitments are a powerful thing, so people try to force them because they're trying to use it. I went down for vacation to um, Escondido. There's a Lawrence Walk Timeshare. Someone hooked us up, and we were down there. And so I sat through the the timeshare presentation, uh, because I'm really addicted to free stuff. (laughs) Whenever there's an offer of free stuff, and like I made them promise a lot of things, and I kept asking the guy through the presentation, now I get this stuff right, no matter what I do. And somehow this guy, they they said it would only be two hours tops. And this guy got the idea that the pastors must make more money than they do, because he took three and a half hours on this thing. I mean, he really was working us, and I was just like, man, this is like almost getting not worth it, you know? And so we get to the end, and I'm like, when can I finally say no, you know, and just be done with this, and then, hey, where's my presence? Because um, <laughs> I'm, I'm in my 30s. Brandon and I were talking about this before the service, but I'm really still going through a drawl of whenever there was a Hallmark card, I, you know, there was a check in it, you know? <laughs> And somewhere in the late 20s, you, you know, when you get Hallmarks now, there's not a gift card or a check, and I'm, it's just a card, which really seems stupid, just a card. Um, so I'm, you know, when do I get my stuff? And uh, and this guy saw me kind of, you know, this guy saw me kind of trying to, to get, be done with it. And our kids have been now in childcare for three and a half hours. Tamara's freaking out. And I'm just like, this is, you know, we need to get out of here. And the more I started trying to get out of there, the more he started pulling out things. Like, if you commit right now, I can give you an extra, like, commit right now special for 10% more. And I'm like, oh, no, dude, we're going to go. And, and he's like, oh, you know what? I didn't tell you about the clergy special. And then another 10% I can give you right now. And... And then, you know, I didn't tell you about the, I'm really, really desperate special. You know, I mean, it was just out of nowhere, he's bringing out all these things. And and I kept saying to him, because I was like, you know, we're not going to make any kind of snap decision. And we weren't going to make any decision at all, but I, I just wanted out. So I was like, hey, what time do you leave today? If we're interested, we'll call you back. But my wife and I don't make snap decisions like that. And, and so I was like, I'll call you back. But he knew if I walked out that door and came out, I mean, they, I think they have air that's like got, certain herbs or aromatherapy in it, and there's, like, subliminal messages everywhere. And every time someone would make a sale, they'd ring a bell and they'd pop champagne. And afterwards, I started thinking, I think those are, like, plants. You know, it's like they just pop champagne for, like, employees and pretend that they just bought something, you know. Just because, you know, you're like, wow, man, a lot of people are buying this. You know, I need to be in on this. Um, But it's all, like, manipulation. And this guy knew if we walked out the door and we're out of, like, his little magical environment there's no way we're going we're gonna to do this, I mean, as a young family with no money, you know. And uh, so he tried really hard to force a commitment. And I think we do the timeshare thing in a lot of places, and a lot of ways in life, and we don't even realize it. And one of the things that always turned me off when I got into church ministry was how churches would use church membership that way. That there was a value, I think, along the way to... Uh, identifying there was a value to being able to just know who was there and, and kind of track statistics or whatever. But I got into back rooms where the, the focus was almost like a timeshare meeting. And they were like, the sooner we can get people to commit to sign on the dotted line that this is the church where they're going to have membership, it cuts off the decision-making process, the, the church shopping process. And then they feel obliged that this is now their home church they committed they made a decision and so it was this big thing of like not how can we have a great church so that people will want to stay but it's like how can we get them to a decision point as quick as we can because once they sign on that dotted line they'll stop looking around and then we've got them and i just kind of got turned off by that and i and I thought, you know, that, that shouldn't be how membership is used. And, you know, at Antioch, we decided not to do membership because membership in a body that serves is, comes by being tied into community, relationships. It comes by serving and being involved as a volunteer to where your life and the church's life are tied together. That's membership. That's the biblical picture of the body, right? And so I kind of was turned off by it. But, but there's negative ways in which we can use commitments. But there's also positive ways. Um, has anyone ever, you know, dated somebody for five years that wouldn't propose? You know, and it just goes on and on. You realize, you know what, if this guy would just propose or if the gal would just say yes, it would cut off this whole never-never land thing and it would just be okay. We could start moving in a direction after that. Um, Buying a house, you know, you can go round and round, but you know at some point you've got to make a decision if you're going to get over that hump and start going in a different direction being a homeowner or spending your money differently or budgeting it differently. There's, there's a point in all things where you kind of have to shut off the decision-making process and make a commitment if you're going to really transition from one stage of life to another phase of life. So we can use those things negatively, but there's also positive values to those things too. And the whole idea of a rite of passage is one of the things or one of the ways in which we try and get a moment in time where somebody is forced into kind of a a ritualistic thing or forced to make commitments or forced to say there's a before and there's an after. And it can be incredibly helpful in the lives of, of young men and young women as they move from adolescence to adulthood. It's called a rite of passage. Now, the interesting thing when we come to baptism... Because baptism, I think, really, more than anything else in Scripture, is this rite of passage that says you're going to make a commitment, you're going to make a decision, you're going to perform an action here that's going to separate out a before and an after. It's this kind of ritualistic thing, this rite of passage, that you need to go through as you're progressing in maturity in your faith. So Peter gets up at the day of Pentecost, and he preaches the gospel kind of for the first time. And people are so jazzed, and they say, well, what do we need to do? And and Peter says, be baptized. And 3,000 people were baptized. And here's a little survey of Acts, because Acts records baptism after baptism. You had 3,000 people in Jerusalem. Then you had men and women in Samaria. You had the Ethiopian eunuch. You had Saul of um, And then Saul of Tarsus of the household of Cornelius going in, and Lydia's household, the uh, Philippian jailer's household, and then a whole lot of people in the town of Corinth that were baptized. And you see this progression over and over that as people that don't know about Jesus Christ make a decision to join in, to kind of have membership, that they're going to go through this rite called baptism, this rite of passage. Now, baptism is kind of a funny word. We we hear it so much. So what does it mean? The literal meaning is a washing or a purification. If you get into the arguments, theological arguments about should it be sprinkling or should it be dunking or this and that, they'll talk about the Greek words and they'll say, but it means dip or dunk. But the whole kind of background of that is literally like a washing kind of thing or dyeing something. You're taking a rag or you're taking something and you're washing it or dyeing it. And so it's this whole idea of cleansing or purification or washing. In the English language, the word baptism has a broader meaning. And it means this. Any ceremony, trial, or experience by which one is initiated, purified, or given a name. I mean, you can do jokes. I baptize thee or I dub thee. The christening whole thing, it's kind of interesting. It's since the... Since the time of the Crusades is when it's first recorded that ships were actually commissioned and blessed and christened. And now we see it where before they go into the water, there's a ceremony and there's a champagne and it's christening the ship. But the word baptism has this broad range of meanings, and that's in the English language. What we want to get after is, as Christians, really what should it mean to us? What's the deeper meaning? What's the symbolism? Why is this thing important? And in the book of Romans, we see... We see Paul, who also talks about it in Colossians, saying that the primary driving metaphor here, the analogy, the thing that gives it its teeth and its meaning is this. And so chapter 6 of Romans, it says this. Verse 4. Well, let's start in verse 3, actually. Chapter 6, verse 3 in Romans, it says, Do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into the death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Same imagery as in Colossians. So this whole idea of what you're doing by being baptized is kind of dying to your old self. It's being put to death. It's going under. It's being buried. And then it's going to be in some spiritual way God is is symbolically going to come in and say, You're now resurrected into this new life. The old is gone, the new has come. That's the imagery here, and and we're kind of identifying with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection as we're baptized. Now, here's the interesting thing Do you not know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? How exciting does that sound? I mean, you know, that's not like a, you know, Henry David Thoreau kind of little quote, is it? I mean, nobody's going, wow, that sounds so ridiculously exciting. I, I'm like, I can't sit still in my seat. We're baptized into his death. And, and it really all of a sudden begins to take us in the direction that, that we need to go. And it's the idea that, that baptism has a cost, it's not necessarily a pleasurable kind of endeavor. The topic of pleasure in the, in the history of the church has always been one of those interesting ones and a pendulum swings back and forth, you go back to the time of Augustine and Augustine, and pleasure was so frowned on that it even went to, to certain levels where we won 't go there but but even pleasures that God created were getting boxed in because you know heaven forbid we might enjoy those things, and enjoyment would be bad, pleasure would be bad and then you got on other ends where there 's kind of this whole spirituality of, of pleasure and ecstasy, and, and it kind of goes off the deep end on this, and the pendulum swings back and forth. In the time of the Puritans, pastors would get up, and they would, per, they would purposely read sermons in monotone. I mean, they would, they would get a sermon, and they would read it in monotone, because they didn't want you to enjoy it, because that would obscure like, the value of it. And I'm thinking, like, you know, we wouldn't listen to someone sing in monotone. Why would we listen to someone preach in monotone? But they they wanted to take themselves so far out of it, and they would wear robes and and try and remove themselves 100% from having any interaction with the emotions so that it was just pure, straight, objective, cold, reasoned truth with no no kind of rhetoric whatsoever. And, you know, we decided not to go with robes because they wouldn't look good with flip-flops, but the... The idea is that this is a topic that we just wrestle with and we kind of pendulum swing back and forth. Now, where do you think we're at with this in today's church, the American church? We're, we're so far off this side, it's not even funny. There's a word called syncretism. and Syncretism simply means like when you bring Christianity that, that has these set of doctrines and beliefs and you bring it into a culture, the tendency would be for that culture to kind of assimilate and marry certain parts of Christianity with some of their existing cultural norms. Okay, so we're going to mix it together. We're going to kind of create it. So you'd have an African um Christian still going to the witch doctor or something. And we would go over to another country and we would see syncretism and we'd say that's ridiculous. How can you have a Christian still going to a witch doctor, right? I mean that's that's ludicrous. But what happens is we're blind to our own types of things that we bring to Christianity. So I had a friend that was a, had been a missionary in Jordan and in Egypt for 25 years. And he was a pastor at the last church I was at in California. And I said to him, hey, you've you got to tell me, I'm really curious, from your perspective after being gone for so long, when you come back to America, what do you see in terms of syncretism? that we water down or dilute Christianity and we bring in all of our kind of American or North American things. And he says, you know, he goes, it's it's obvious, it's two things. He says, we don't rely on Scripture. We've kind of moved Scripture and the authority of Scripture to the periphery. And he goes, and then the most dominant one is we've brought individualism into the church, consumerism into the church. Where church is, is about me and what I get out of it. And so we... We showed a video, I think, a year ago, but just to kind of get a picture of this, uh, I thought we'd show the short little clip again, and hopefully we'd all be seeing the same thing. So,
1: Imagine a church where every member is passionately, wholeheartedly, and recklessly calling the shots. I have a busy work week, and by the time Sunday rolls around, I'm tired. So how about a church service that starts when I get there? Can do. When you arrive, we begin. This guy, he plays by his own rules. We want to find a church where if he starts screaming,
0: we're not the bad guys. All right? Come
1: here. Say no more. If your baby's screaming, you stay seated. The others around you can leave.
0: You know, financially, Sherry and I don't give a lot to the church, but we'd sure like to know who does.
1: All right, if you join now, you'll know what every person gives in detail. When I'm in the church service, can my car get a buff and a wax? Not just that, but an oil change and a tune-up.
0: How about tickets to the Super Bowl?
1: That's asking too much.
0: I'm serious. If I'm going to join, I want tickets to the big game.
1: All right. You join now, and we'll get you there.
0: I like a pony.
1: Look in your backyard. Me Church, where it's all about you.
0: We all laugh, but the funny thing is, is deep down inside, we're all Americans and we walk in and that's kind of how we feel, you know, and the, here's the great thing. There's rules out there and books out there and there's a whole subcategory of church studies out there called church growth. And a lot of them actually just study what can we do to grow a big church? And really the answer is if you just throw out a, enough things that people want, then they'll come. You don't ever have to deal with their heart or break them. I mean, you can take a wild stallion, but by controlling food or water, you can lead the wild stallion where you want it to go and you never have to break it. And so there's whole philosophies out there, self-help gospel and other things where we're just going to be like, what felt needs do people have and how can we just dangle those out there and get people excited and entertain them and churches will grow. It's amazing. You can grow churches by human strength. And so the, the hard thing is, as we look at this, is just saying, how does that really jive, that American individualistic stripe, with this idea of you who are baptized are baptized into the death of Christ. The death of Christ. You know, it's interesting. Um, I've dreamed of a lot of things in my life. Like, if you think back to it, you'll, you'll remember the things you dreamed about. But when I was in Little League... I would lay in bed at night and I would dream about hitting home runs. And then when I was a skier, I skied for a long time and really you know, cared deeply about it. And I would dream, it was before snowboarding. And uh, so I would dream about being a, an extreme skier and going, to, you know, going off of cliffs and all sorts of crazy stuff in France and all these other exotic places. And then uh, I got into college, you know, would dream about, because I was at Clemson. And I would dream about being Forrest Gump because obviously I don't have any physical athletic skills, but I was like, neither did Forrest Gump. But if I could just run really fast, it could be like on a football team and just be the return guy. And, and I would actually like it, picture that. You guys think I'm weird, but I know you did it too. Um, we dream of things. You know, now all I dream of is like vacations and, you know, reading a book in Hawaii without the kids, you know, and getting away and date nights and... But we dream about a lot of things. There's times when I dreamed about serving in missions and missions, and I get super excited about going and doing or serving. I've, I've dreamed about a lot of things. Okay, we all dream about things. I've never met somebody who dreams about baptism. Have you ever met somebody that just is so obsessed with the idea of baptism? They're just like, I so just desire it. It's so cool. I dream about it. It's just the idea of it just gets me charged. And and I want to do it. And the idea is um, nobody does. There's a lot of Christian things serving and the joy of giving back to others. Missions can be this way. It's become really fashionable these days to to be involved in the world globally and do things. There's a lot of things that we can do to serve that are good things. um, But... We kind of yearn for them or dream about them or desire them. And it's kind of like the, the, I was watching the women's gymnastics the other day. I did, never dreamed about that, by the way. But they have the scoring and it's like this degree of difficulty factor. And then there's the execution factor. And the degree of difficulty on baptism is 10. It's the highest it gets. There's, there's nobody that sits around going, ooh, this would be fun or I desire it or, or I'm just drawn to it. But there's other things that have an easier degree degree of difficulty. And so we really get confronted with this thing about baptism, and it's frustrating. We don't dream of it. Luther said this No one is baptized in order to become a prince, but as the words say, to be saved. Now Luther didn't believe that it actually saved you, but he saw this symbolism as being tied to the death, burial, and resurrection of us as, as we're made new. And the scriptures say that baptism is a part of that. And Luther said, nobody goes and does it out of their desire. No one does it to become a prince. It is not a desire, baptism, so much as a decision. It is not because it is fun. We do it because it's a rite of passage. It's a commitment that we need to make. And if we don't bring into our faith these difficult things, we, we create something that's really a problem. The whole me church. We create a me church, and I think what goes along with that is we create a me God. We take a really big, mysterious, huge, hard to comprehend God, and we take and we shape and we pull and we poke and we, we we end up with Santa Claus. And we've got our me church, and we've got our Santa Claus God, and the idea is, it's like in high school. Did you ever see those two friends in high school where the one person was really cool and the other person just kind of followed, followed the cool person around like a slave? I mean, it wasn't like a relationship. It was like this person was accepted into the cool circle because he or she just did the bidding of this other person. It was like having a little slave. Um, well, when we put God in that position, he's here just to meet my needs. It's all about me. And the church, the church is here just to meet my needs. As I magnify myself and go on to a bigger and better life, we create something that we can't respect. Because you see that friend or that, that person that uses somebody else in that kind of slave capacity, when this person runs into a difficult time and needs advice or really needs someone to, to like support them and encourage them, um, who are they going to run to? they're not going to run to that kind of slavish person that has no identity and no self to them. They're going to go find someone that they respect and they're going to say, hey, I need advice or I need some help. And I think it's really interesting because we've got churches that are big. We've got Christianity in America with just so many people that would claim to be Christians and we don't know where to turn when things get difficult. The practical problem of what do I do when the chips are down? What do I do when life is hard? What do I do when I I face a major loss or a death or a dream that's now died and my, my world is rocked and shaken completely upside down and I look around and I'm desperate. I'm like, it's like I'm drowning and I've got to grab onto something and I look at a weak spineless church and I look at a weak Santa Claus God and then I keep grasping looking for something that's got a backbone, something that's strong, something that's deep and meaningful and rich and can actually give me answers that might not be easy, but that are true. And and I bypass church and God on my quest for some kind of grounding. Because what I've done is I've so made God in my own image and I've so made the church into my own little kind of club that they can't actually do what God made them to do the Holy Spirit, the comforter, the encourager, the one that goes with us so that we know that we're always known and we're always together and that God is present in the church where there's a gazillion one another statements in the the Gospels. Do this for one another. Do this for one another. One another, one another. And these things that God has put into our life, our messy lives, where we're going to have pain. And then all of a sudden we get to a point we can't avail ourselves of that because we've Americanized them. We've Americanized them. And baptism is not something that we dream of. Matthew 28, if you open to it, it's on the screen, I think, too. Matthew 28 is the last last recorded words of Christ. And so, you know, if if you'd never read them and someone was like, here's like the last recorded words of Christ. There's a book out and then a YouTube sensation out. There's a, uh, I think, Melton... Carnegie Melton or there's a college that had a professor I think his name was Randy Pausch and he recently died of cancer but there's this last lecture that's really a fascinating lecture but it's almost this internet sensation because it's like the last lecture the one he gave right before he died and people like are drawn to that and if I was going to tell you these last words of Christ you'd be like so super excited he's going to give me like the answer to the holy grail I mean, I'm going to get the key to, like, successful living here. This is going to be, the, of all the words of Jesus, the most meaningful words of Jesus. And you'd be super excited. And then, like, if you're like me, you'd be super disappointed. Because this is what it says. Then Jesus came to them and said, "...all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations." baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I will be with you always to the very end of the age. Like, I, I was in grad school and you come across this paragraph a lot. And I was always just disappointed by it. And I kind of finally realized why. Because it talks about two things primarily. Baptism And education. Last week we talked about how education is like the most boring word there is in the English language. And this morning we're talking about baptism being something that's just not fun. Nobody dreams about it. And so Jesus' last words are, um, go and baptize people and educate them, teach them. And so the whole grand finale, the build-up, waiting for the fireworks at the end, right? And, And he says, baptism and education. And maybe there's something that we need to hear in that. That maybe it's not the paint. It's not what's sexy. It's not what's visible. It's not what's fashionable. But it's the bricks and mortar that really matter. Maybe in our faith it's not the glamour stuff, but the foundational things that really are going to be what matters most and what grounds us and what supports us and what builds us up as we move forward. And maybe we just are syncretizing American faith and we really are addicted to the fashionable and the glamorous, the sexy stuff. There's a saying that we in America worship our work, work at play, and play at worship. We worship our work, we work at play, and we play at worship. I was asking myself this week the question, how come Jesus got baptized? I mean, he didn't need to be washed of sins. You know, how come he got baptized? Ignatius, uh, who was martyred in 110 AD, he kind of had this answer, and it was so that Jesus would purify the waters of baptism. And I think that maybe we don't need to understand like a big reason why, other than just the fact that Jesus did it. Maybe the reason Jesus got baptized was just to show us that sometimes these symbolic forms of worship, these rituals that kind of God pres- prescribes, that you just do them. It, don't, it doesn't have to have like this earth-shattering, like changing the waters of baptism, meaning maybe Jesus is just leading by example and saying some things are just important, but they're not necessarily desirable. You're not going to just run after them. You choose to do them. You commit to do them. Instead, maybe that's just all Jesus was doing was saying, this is important. Baptism's important. Worship's important. Not everything's gonna be something that we dream about or desire, but it, it puts a moment in your life when I can really grab hold of you and begin working in you because you've kind of symbolically in your mind done away with the old stuff. And maybe Jesus just led by example that we just need to do it. Luther said, No one is baptized in order to become a prince. But as the words say, to be saved. Let's pray. Father, um, I just just pray for us that we would never play at worship. That the size of our God would dictate the passion in our worship. How big you are, how grand you are. Hopefully the, the love and the goodness that we see in you would draw out of us worship that is commensurate with that and i pray that we wouldn't just be caught playing with the things that feel good i just i pray that we would be deeper than that and we would just be willing to do the things you say to do and father i just pray for people that are getting baptized today for people that are thinking about getting baptized today that you would just fill them with just joy That knowing when they do these things, that it's not pointless or silly or stupid. It's a rite of passage that's going to bring meaning in their life. That you're going to be able to use to separate a before and an after. We pray this in Christ's name. Um, Real quick, before any things, if if you, we've got a bunch of people signed up for baptism. But if you didn't know we were going to be doing it, or if you were trying to decide on doing it, Um, come up to me after the service. We'd love to get you involved in the baptism service today. We do it once a year. And so if God's speaking to you that way, I'm going to be around after the service. I'd just love for you to come talk to me. There's plenty of time between the service and the baptism. And if you have questions, I can answer those, and we'll get you involved. So.